This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And Matt, you may have noticed that there were some trades made in the last couple of days, so we're going to obviously talk about all those. Uh, we have to also talk about Giancarlo Stanton and some really interesting hitters on the Texas Rangers. Plus, we're going to induct a new play into our StatCast Hall of Fame. But first, let's talk about the big trade of the week. Mike Leake going to Seattle. <laughs> Wait, no, sorry. Justin Verlander finally got moved. Um, I, I got to be honest, I think I went to bed at like, five of midnight last night and thought, nah, this wasn't going to happen. And then I wake up this morning and all of a sudden Justin Verlander is on the Astros. So are you surprised that this actually happened? Uh, yes, because I didn't think they'd be able to come to an agreement on prospects um, because it seemed like that prob- my thought was the Tigers would probably be holding out for Kyle Tucker, the Astros' top prospect, and that the Astros wouldn't be willing to budge on that. So instead they went for a little more quantity over maybe quality, and they got the Astros, I guess, number three prospect, uh, starting pitcher Franklin Perez, uh, their number nine prospect outfielder, Daz Cameron, Mike Cameron's son, uh, if you want to feel old, and uh, catcher Jake Rogers, their number 11 prospect. So I think this is this is a fascinating deal for, for both sides, and uh, I'm sort of glad the Astros did it because I think that based on the roster they have now, he they needed – I mean, they needed a another – High-level starting pitcher, I think, to feel good about um, competing in postseason series against other elite teams. It seems to me a pretty fair trade for both sides, which uh, a certain someone told me was just the opposite of a hot take on Twitter this morning. I mean, I think it was. You know, the Tigers did pretty well for themselves here, and and so did the Astros because they, you know, they get Verlander and they gave up good prospects, but not, you know, their number one prospect or number two prospect. So, you know, I think the Tigers made some really hard choices, and we'll talk about Justin Upton in a second as well. But it's interesting to me is who is Justin Verlander right now? Like, what version of Justin Verlander are the Astros going to get? Because last year was really good. He probably should have won the Cy Young last year. You know, he lost to uh, 22 wins worth of, of Rick Porcello. And I think the question here is, are you going to get the Verlander who kind of started off the year with like a 5 ERA for the first three months? Or the Verlander who's been really, really good? So if we look at his stats here, uh, first 17 games started, 496 ERA, not so great. 434 ERA, uh, excuse me, FIP, not so great. Uh, his last nine starts up, 231 ERA, 364 FIP, strikeout percentage up from 29 up from 21 to 29%. His walks have dropped from 11% to 7%. That's a guy who looks more like the ace like Verlander that we've seen in years past. But it's interesting. It didn't come with like a huge velocity increase. It didn't come with a new pitch. There's really no obvious underlying reason to explain why. I mean, I, as we were saying, it's probably something to do with the location that's really hard to kind of get into the numbers for. Yeah, if anything, it might actually have had something to do with a slight velocity decrease, um, which uh, I'll explain, which is that basically his since the All-Star break, his slider velocity has been a little bit down, but creates a, creating a little more separation from the fastball velocity may actually be helping the, the pitch offer a little more deception. Before the All-Star break, he was throwing his slider at 89.5 uh, miles an hour. Since then, it's been 87.2 miles an hour. So that's not insane. That's two and a half miles an hour. And his whiff rate has doubled on that pitch. So it was 5% before the All-Star break. It's 
10% since, or to be exact, 5.3 before, 10.7% since. When we talk about whiff rate, we're talking about on pitches where the batter swung. Right. So there's definitely something going on with the slider where dropping a little velocity has helped helped it play up from a performance standpoint because he's getting a lot more swings and misses on the pitch. And he's a guy who's always been kind of fascinating from a StatCast perspective because he's got a very interesting fastball. You know, he's he's one of the guys we always talk about as having a high-spin fastball. And even with all the miles on his arm, he still does. So we looked at uh, 210 starters have thrown at least 104 seamers this year. His spin rate of 2,536 RPM is second. Second of those 210, it's ahead of Darvish, it's ahead of Scherzer, it's behind, surprisingly, Tyson Ross, which I was a little surprised to see by that, but I guess you know, that kind of goes back to when Tyson Ross has been healthy, that's part of the reason he succeeds, and uh, his 95.3 miles an hour on his velocity is tied for 16th of 210 starting pitchers, so the velocity is still there, but as you said, it didn't really change from the first half, which kind of makes the whole thing a little bit confounding. Yeah, for to, to for on that four-team spin rate, um, 2,500, as we've sort of talked about on the show before, 2,500 RPM spin rate of 14 fastballs, kind of like the gold standard. You're talking about uh, 80 grade spin rate, essentially. That's where you get that really, it allows for that extra deception, the rising fastball effect. And certainly that Verlander and Scherzer are guys that have really benefited from that in their careers, in addition to the elite velocity that comes with it. So you combine the velocity and the spin rate, that's you, a lot of deception on the fastball. Yeah, and the difference between the, the good Verlander we've seen lately and the you know less good Verlander we saw early on, it wasn't really luck. I mean, if we look into our batted ball skill metric or quality of contact with strikeouts, you know, expected weighted on base, his first 17 games started, expected weighted on base was 346. He allowed a 335, so he basically earned all that. Second nine games... 279 expected and he actually has been getting a 261 so he's clearly just been better overall but here's the one thing that stands out to me and and i kind of went back and forth on this my initial thought was he's leaving detroit for houston that's a huge ballpark difference right we talked so many times about detroit's ballpark swallowing up uh deep batted balls to center field and houston still has this reputation as being an extreme hitters park but it hasn't actually played like that this year and you look at altuve he's been a monster on the road you look at uh keichel and mccullers they've actually been much better at home so i think the narrative is going to be oh well he's going to give up some easy home runs down the lines i'm not sure that's actually true anymore yeah it's just it just has the fluky the, the not the fluky the short down the lines you get you get cheap homers down the lines in houston because it happens on both sides it's not just this isn't just yankee stadium where it's only shallow to one end or fenway park where it's only shallow to the other and it's it's shallow both both lines in houston but other than that it's actually not that forgiving of a park particularly in the outfield of center and field so it's it's not necessarily going to be that much of a i don't expect the, the, the ballpark to have a major effect on his uh, raw stats. Right, and I agree with you. And that, I think that's what's interesting because the initial expectation is, oh, that's a huge difference. But maybe in reality, it's not. And for the Astros, this is a big deal. Obviously, they've uh, been struggling for a couple weeks now. They are 11-17 and 17 in August. They still don't have to worry to any, at all about the AOS, but this is about the playoffs. And if you look at their potential playoff rotation, and I hesitate to use the word rotation because I don't really think we're going to see a traditional starting rotation for this team in the playoffs. Obviously, Verlander is starting one of your first two games. Keiko, who's been somewhat up and down when he's been healthy, he was obviously really good to start the year and has been inconsistent since, probably starts one of your first two games. And then after that, I don't think you're really going to see a quote-unquote starter. I think you're going to see these kind of tandems because in terms of talent, McCullers is probably your third best pitcher, but he's not healthy. And he hasn't. I think he's on a rehab assignment right now and hasn't really been that dominating. So you hope to get a couple innings out of him and maybe you pair him with Brad Peacock or Charlie Morton or Colin McHugh. You get you know three or four innings 
out of each of those guys, and that's half of a game, you know, right there. And then you've got Chris Davinsky, who's maybe one of the next Andrew Miller types that everybody talks about, and Joe Musgrove, who was not a very successful starting pitcher, 6-12 ERA, but has been pretty dominant in 20 innings as a reliever, 133. is kind of like the new Davinsky as well. You can get three or four innings, two or three innings, one or two innings, whatever, out of all of these guys after Keuchel and Verlander, and all of a sudden you've got yourself a playoff, or uh, not rotation, so much as a staff. Yeah, no, and no, knowing what we know about the Astros and their sort of being an analytically driven, forward-thinking front office, and the fact that their manager, A.J. Hinch, is very very well aligned with the front office's thinking for the most part, I cannot imagine we're going to see any of their starters besides possibly Keichel or Verlander face a batter a third time in the postseason. And if they do, it'll only be because they're like, cruising and they have a very short very short leash right and then you know the the bullpen has been up and down but Ken Giles is very talented. Gregerson, you know, Harris, if he comes back healthy, they have a lot of arms. They just need them to all be kind of healthy and performing at the same time. And this could very well be the Astros we thought we were going to see in the beginning of the season. Yeah, and there's a couple more things about the the Verlander trade from a big big picture perspective I wanted to get to. First of all, is just sort of the the long term money aspect. You know, he's owed 28 million over the next two years. Um, Tigers are sending some money, so. Even that, the 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 Tigers are saying I think eight million. Per so year. so he's owed twenty eight million next year and twenty eight million the following year. The Tigers are sending eight million per year. So the Astros uh, really, I believe, owe twenty million next year and also twenty million the following year. They have waived his twenty twenty team option that was a vesting option. So basically, he's going to be a free agent after twenty nineteen, and he gets a full no trade from the Astros. And it's also, I mean, from the the Astros, they're in a, a team that has the flexibility to make this move. I looked at their long term payroll uh, commitments, and I think it's. For 2019, they have 50 million essentially committed, and that includes Verlander. And it's basically Ver, it's basically Verlander and Josh Reddick who uh, com- comprise like 40 million of that. Because even Altuve, he has team options for 18 and 19 that are six and 6.5 million. It's almost criminal. And I think Uriel has signed for a couple years, but not a big money. But like you know, Correa is going to obviously start getting raises once he hits arbitration. Springer, Springer, as he goes through arbitration, will will, will get raises as well. But this is a team that has the flexibility to make this. This kind of move, particularly when you factor in that the Tigers are sending them sending them some money, uh, so it's for me it's kind of a no, it's a no brainer from Houston's perspective. It's, it's a good trade for the Astros. It's a good trade for the Tigers, and it's a good trade for baseball. <laughs> I mean, it's that's really exciting, and now you're a lot more excited about the Astros uh, than you were, and it puts them in a very interesting class of teams as far as their rotation goes. Yeah, and the, the one other like uh, quirky thing I wanted to mention about the trade and sort of getting into like uh, I don't know uh, I don't know what is, is this butterfly theory? I don't know what. The idea, if you look at one of the key components of this trade was Daz Cameron, who they drafted in 2015. And they basically, he was a guy who was supposed to be a top 10 pick, but fell because of signability concerns. However, in 2015, the, the Astros had a huge draft pool bonus because they had not signed Brady Aiken the year before. So they had two of the top five picks. So basically, they were the only team that was basically able to... Once Daz Cameron fell, it basically was like, okay, the Astros are going to get him because they were the only team that really was going to be able to meet his bonus demands as like the number 35 pick or whatever it was. So basically, you could sort of like trace this trade back to them failing to sign Brady Aiken. <laughs> Which they got crushed for. And I remember in a previous life, I wrote like 4,000 words at the time about how they got unfairly crushed for that. And they were, I mean, that was when they, and that was when they, they drafted Bregman and Kyle Tucker with two of the top five yeah. picks and then got Daz Cameron, who they used as a piece 
to make this trade. And that's exactly right. This is how you make these trades uh, with deals like that. And it, it does make for an interesting potential postseason starting uh, starting pitching collection. So right now there are 10 teams in position to make the playoffs. And I think, obviously, you look at the AOL card, these are going to change a lot as time goes on. But I think uh, you found something really interesting, right, about each of these 10 teams and their rotations right now. Uh, nine of the 10 teams. Hat, hat tip to uh, research uh, wonk David Adler that nine of the 10 teams, the playoffs started today, nine of the 10 teams would have a former Cy Young winner uh, in their rotation. Before you read these off, can I say, you said this to me this morning, and you said nine of the ten teams, and I kind of thought through it in my head, and eight of the teams was pretty easy to come up with, right? Like, okay, the Dodgers have Kershaw. And I couldn't get that ninth team, and I kind of racked my brain. And then once you told me who it was, I, I kind of about fell off my chair. So tell us. Tell okay, us well, are. the Red Sox have Rick Porcello and David Price. Uh, Indians have Corey Kluber. Uh, I don't remember the years for all these guys, so I'm not going to even try. Uh, I know Porcello was last year, and that one is pr- history is probably not going to be kind to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how young. No. Um, Indians of Corey Kluber. Astros have Verlander and Keuchel. Yankees have CC Sabathia. The Twins have. This wait is for the one. it. This is the one I couldn't get. Give it to us. Bartolo Colon from uh. 2005. So now we're, we're 12 years past and like probably 12 different teams for Cologne pass. And speaking of history not being kind to awards, Bartolo over Johan Santana that year is maybe one of the top three like heists I think we've ever and had. And probably one of the worst signing decisions uh, uh, on record. Uh, Nationals have Max Scherzer. Cubs have Jake Arrieta. Dodgers have Clayton Kershaw. D-backs have Zan Greinke. And the Rockies are the one team that's a playoff start today would not have a... Cy Young winner in their rotation. And I think that's less about altitude than it is about youth. I mean, everybody in that rotation, they don't really have a long-term veteran guy who's been around for years and years and years. Yeah, and, like as, as, we, and as we saw with the Twins, having a Cy Young winner on your roster doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean current quality, although Cologne has been surprisingly good has been since uh, coming, to the, uh, coming to the Twins. So the Verlander deal was not the only deal we had. There were a couple others we want to talk about. Uh, but very quickly, first, if you love baseball, and if you're listening to our show, of course you do, do take the thrill of controlling your roster and smacking one out of the park with you everywhere you go with the number one baseball game on mobile tap sports baseball 2017 go to the itunes or google play app store right now to download it today for free and start building your ultimate roster now the tigers also made another deal yesterday they moved justin upton to the angels and when i first heard about that i was like oh yeah that makes a ton of sense because justin upton was probably going to opt out he's got four years and 88 million left i don't know if he's actually going to do much better than that but the tigers are clearly going to be rebuilding so i think he decided that he didn't want to do that and i believe he actually kind of told the team like this is probably what I'm going to do, and that sort of helped move things along. Now, there's a couple teams that you could have seen Justin Upton being a fit on. I was actually surprised the Angels pulled the trigger because it just hasn't really been their style. Uh, but not only did they do that, they got Upton and they got Brandon Phillips. And we can talk about how valuable those two guys are in just a second. But I think there's a huge amount of value of not necessarily feeling you have to get superstars, but just filling in these really like dark spots in the lineup. And if you look at the Angels, their second baseman this year had a 259 weighted on base, 59 weighted runs created plus, each easily the worst in baseball. Uh, that was mostly Danny Espinosa, who they cut a few weeks ago. Their left fielder is mostly Ben Revere and Cameron Mabin. 290 weighted on base, 80 weighted runs created plus, each 28th in baseball. These are two spots that have been issues for them for quite some time. And now they've filled them, you know, either competently or above averagely. And that's a big deal for a team that is uh, only a game and a half out of the playoffs. I, I, I love this trade for the Angels for like a variety of reasons. Um, it's As you said, it's it's just, it's a big, just upgrade for them. And they need it. And Upton's having the best, is actually having the, the best season of his career um, offensively, which sort of surprised me when I looked closely at it yesterday. Uh, well, at least, or sorry, best, second best. It's close. It's close enough. He's having one of the best seasons of a very good career. He's still relatively young. Um, and the, as noted, the he ha, he could have, he's, he turned... Um, he turned 30 last week. Turned 30 last week. And he could have blocked trades to 20 teams 
the Angels are one of the nine teams he could not block a trade to, which indicates that he may this may be a place where he will not opt out. Because the biggest reason he was going to opt out was because he's going to be playing on a rebuilding team in Detroit. But now he's going to be playing for a team that well maybe doesn't isn't like built to win with him now with Trout. It's like okay, this is a team that probably could stay in contention for at least a couple of years. And as you said, it's not necessarily clear he's going to do much better on the free agent market. So. I could see him sticking around the Angels. So it's a, calc- it's a calculated risk for the Angels, but it's not like they gave up that much to get him. So, yeah, I mean, I think a week ago it was like 99.9% likely that opt out was going to happen. And now it's maybe more of a 50 50. You know, I, I mean, who knows where he actually wants to be, but I think it's tough to see him getting a lot more money than he has. And if he likes playing, you know, with the Angels, who I think tried to sign him in the first place, then maybe they do. He does stick around. And the Angels are going to lose a lot of money off their, play- their, their payroll this winter, right? $26 million they're still paying to Josh Hamilton this year. And this is the final year of that. Uh, $8 million to Ricky Noasco, and the, the Twins are covering the other four. $9 million to Houston Street. $7 million to Yunel Escobar. Almost six to Jesse Chavez. Four for Ben Revere. A couple other guys making $2 million apiece. There are a lot of dollars that are coming off the payroll, even though they are still paying a ton to Trout and paying a ton to Albert Pujols. They can still fit this in if he decides to stay. And it's out of their hands now, honestly. Yeah, and what's also interesting is there's a player to be named later in the trade, and I... I I wonder if it's tied to whether or not he opts out or not. That like that's basically interesting. Yeah, like if 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 that's part of the discussion where like they may if he stays, the Angels will give will send something a little better than if he opts out. I don't know exactly how the machinations of that work, but I I, I am left wondering. But I think he's a great fit. The Angels are in the thick of the wild card race. Amazingly, actually, I shouldn't say amazingly. In the preseason, I said that they were a dark horse ball hard contender, and you mocked me for it. So I, I should be uh, I say, saying— I don't understand how this is happening. Yeah, but. I should say, obviously, the Angels are in the wild card race, um, despite but, missing losing Mike Trout for six weeks. The one thing we knew about the Angels coming into the season is that they would have an extremely good defense up the middle, right? Because obviously Trout in center, but Simmons has been fantastic on both sides of the ball. Espinosa didn't hit, but he's a, he was a good defender. Um, and so now that they're going to have, this defense has been helping them kind of overcome a questionable— pitching situation i mean if you look at the rotation right now nolasco has not been that great uh parker bridwell has been kind of a pleasant surprise but pretty clearly overperforming his peripherals uh tyler skaggs andrew heaney's been pretty nice since he's been back and reportedly garrett richards could be back in the rotation as soon as next week i don't know if you can actually count on him but uh we love garrett richards yeah he, he pitched speaking of guys with high spin rate um yeah. he pitched in uh triple a this week and i know that i saw um uh, Pedro Mora was there, was tweeting about it, saying that he was the, the stadium gun in the AAA park, so take that with a grain of salt, had him at like 95, 96. So if Garrett Richards comes back, that's that's a big, I mean, I'm, again, I wouldn't expect much, but that's a, that's an X factor. If he can give you anything, even if he just gives you two starts, two good starts, that's that's something. The Angels, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a, they're an interesting team. And now with, with Upton, uh, with Trout, you look at the middle of the order, it's like, okay, this, this lineup suddenly looks a lot more formidable and Upton's kind of an interesting player because like when he was drafted it was like he was sort of considered one of these maybe not generational but like oh my god this is a ridiculous number one overall pick and like he's had a good career so like when it's all said and done he might seem like but he's never taken that leap but like he sort of reminds me of of Pat Burrell that like when all said and done if you look back at who was also number one overall pick if you go back when all said and done you look at his career it's like that guy had a pretty good career but like because he didn't become like the super duper star that people expected he might feel like a little bit of a letdown, but like he's an extremely useful player right now. Three sixty-two on base, five forty-two slugging. He has the twentieth best. He's tied uh, for twentieth best weighted runs created plus in baseball this year. 
that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, being top 20 in anything is pretty impressive. And they also got Brandon, uh, Brandon Phillips from Atlanta. And I was kind of surprised when I looked this up. You sort of think, oh, he's 36. He's been around forever. He's you know comfortably into his decline phase. And it's not necessarily true. If you look at his career, with the exception of his career year in 2011, where he was kind of wildly out of norm with the, with the rest of the, of the work he's done, he's essentially been the exact same guy every single year. And I actually mean that, right? So listen, this year, he's hitting 291. 329 on base and a 423 slugging. Last year he had 291 with a 320 on base, a 416 slugging. For his career, he's hit 276 with a 320 on base, a 421 slugging. He has literally been the exact same guy, just a slightly below league average hitter for about the last 12 years. Like that is consistency to me, and that might not sound exciting, but remember, they had the worst second base situation in baseball. All you need to do is fill these holes, and all of a sudden, you've got yourself a pretty comp- co- competent lineup. Yeah, it's a nice little pickup for them. You know, he, as you said, he's consistent. He is he's fun to watch play second base. He's got great hands. You know, it's um, with him, and we're going to see some very cool looking double plays That's turn with, exactly him, right. with him and Jordan Simmons. And they put him at th- Atlanta put him at third base for the last month, and he'd never played there before, and he actually. Did reasonably well. I, you know, I'll go back to second base here with the with the Angels, but I, I am pretty excited to see him and Simmons and Trout right up the middle. I mean, this is an exciting team now. It's an exciting team. Um, you know, the AO wildcard race is wide open. I sort of I, I feel like the um, Twins, Yankees, and Angels are going to sort of at some point make it a three team race just because I trust their depth more. The thing that's interesting about the Yankee schedule from here on out is the Yankees play almost exclusively. Um, contenders from here on out and not just the teams in their own division they they also have a series against minnesota and a series against kansas city just randomly so it's not like they're they're they didn't even like the only the most the worst team they play based on record is the blue jays so they don't even have any random series against the a's or the white Sox. um granted there aren't that many american league teams who are out of it completely but like they basically are only playing teams in the race so and they have six more against the orioles who are still hanging around so the every Yankees game from here on out is kind of like has impact on the on the standings. What I need to do now is uh, look up the September schedule for the Tigers because they are kind of go to White Sox territory right now for the right reasons for sure. But uh, it's going to be a rough end of the season I think for Detroit. Uh, and then also for some reason Cameron Maben went from the Angels to the Astros, which I don't know is kind of confusing because the Astros have a ton of outfielders, but he's very fast. He can be a good outfielder off the bench. Um, Giancarlo Stanton has not homered in the last two days which is almost a, a shocking report at this point because it seemed like he was on an every-other-day home run stretch. But he does have 51 home runs through 133 team games. There are 29 Marlins games remaining. He hit 18 home runs in August, and uh, he still has a pretty decent shot at 61. It almost feels like a given, as crazy as that sounds to say. Getting to 74? Mm, uh, I don't know about that. To get to 74 home runs, which would break the all-time record of 73 set by Barry Bonds, he would need to get 21 home runs in the remaining 29 games. That's one every 1.4 games. As great as Stanton is, and there are things in his favor, which we'll talk about in a second, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, for me, it's all – I just want to I want to see 60 because I think that's just the cool milestone. I know, like, 61 has the 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 romance of Roger Maris, but I almost – like, it's just annoying to have that conversation. People get into, like, the well, 61 is the real record. It's not. It's 73 not. is the record. 60 just cool. I mean, only five other players have ever hit 60 home runs in a season. Like, it's right. in, it's insane. There, it, it, you can have something at the same time not be the all-time record and still be extremely cool. Like, these are not mutually exclusive. You can do that. And so I am excited to see him get to what I assume he will get to 60. Where he get, lands, I don't know, 63, 64, maybe something like that. But here's what's working in his favor. If you look at the Marlins' September schedule, they have, uh, I think, nine series left, right? And so at home, who's going to come through Miami? The Phillies. 
not exactly a top-notch pitching staff. Uh, the Braves, not exactly a top-notch pitching staff. Now, the Washington Nationals are obviously very good. The Brewers are still fighting for a playoff spot, and then the Mets are coming through, and then we, you know, you never really know who's going to be pitching for the Mets at any given time, but look at their road trips. They go to Atlanta, and that ballpark is definitely a more hitter-friendly park than the previous Braves park was. They go to Philadelphia. It's definitely a hitter's park. It's definitely a, homer, a homer-friendly park. And then they go, their last road trip of the season is through through Arizona and through Colorado. He hasn't been to Colorado yet this year. hasn't been to Arizona yet this year. And that's exciting, because this is kind of the second half of the month. Maybe he goes in there, and, and if, this could still be a, a playoff implication game, by the way. He could maybe go through this six-game road trip and be sitting on like 58 or whatever at that point, and we all want to see him hit like nine home runs at altitude that's exciting to me yeah, i mean those are the two best home run parks in base in the national in the national league in baseball i mean well sort of i mean colorado it's it's not always about home runs there it's also about like doubles and triples just because the ballpark's so big but he's played 20 games in his career in colorado he has home run homered in 10 of those games so that is a pretty nice place for him to be now the question is since those teams will be fighting uh, each other most likely for the wild card will he will, will anybody pitch to him yeah that's the question like if you have to worry about losing the game do you just pitch around him i don't know but it's something that be concerned about, I guess. And it's also, it's going to be September expand rosters when teams go to the bullpen well a lot earlier. So you could see some just like relievers you've never heard of facing John Carlos Stanton in the fifth inning of a tight game and that reliever just being like, what do I do? What do, what do I do? Well, I know that when he is playing uh, those games in Coors Field, I'll be watching pretty much every pitch because that's going to be exciting. But I do want to raise a question. Is Stanton this year better than the 2015 version of John Carlos Stanton? And I know that sounds insane because he's been crushing the ball for months. But if we look at expected weighted on base, which combines quality of contact with amount of contact, uh, this year his expected weighted on base is 409, which is obviously very good. Last year it was only 347. We know he struggled a lot. In 2015, it was 413, so it was actually slightly better. He only played 74 games due to injury, but he did have a 606 slugging percentage and 27 home runs. Uh, so if you just look at the quality of contact, that seems pretty identical. So what's different? This year, he's overperforming, as you would expect, a little bit. Uh, his expected 409 versus an actual 433, as opposed to two years ago, expected 413 versus an actual 397. Uh, so there's that. And then there's also the fact that the Stanton you're thinking about right now for this year is not the same Stanton we've seen all year long. Since he changed his stance, uh, which we've pinned at June 19th, his expected weighted on base is 459. His actual is 481. Uh, so the Stanton over the last two and a half months, slightly different from the Stanton over the first two and a half months, and that counts too. Yeah, no, there was a really good piece uh, written on our site by the aforementioned David Adler that sort of broke down the change in his stance. It's really, it's really glaring. Like if, if you haven't really paid attention, he now is really closed up. Like his front foot is really, you know, it's almost touching the like inside part of the batter's box. So he's really, it's a very much a different, different look for him. And it's, you know, you know, hitters tinker all the time. We don't necessarily think about it because like at some point when he's, when this isn't working for him, he'll probably change again and open up again. But like for now, since he's done that, he's been ridiculous is there is there a term for whatever the opposite of your foot in the bucket is because that's basically what he's doing right like he's got his his lead foot is like facing towards right field and he's still getting around on balls he's still pulling balls down at third baseline which is crazy yeah and what's interesting now too is is he gonna be the nl mvp i kind of think if he gets to 60 yes but you know paul goldschmidt's been really really good lately and and you know they are probably going to have the we made the playoffs uh thing and the marlins most likely won't i mean you could argue for charlie blackman too although we talked last week about his crazy home road splits i do think right now the top four are in some order stanton goldschmidt blackman and vado i guess so people are going to freak out when nolan arenado finishes like sixth i guess well i mean i, th- I don't think if, you, if you're going to factor in like didn't make the playoffs i can't see vado winning it over 
standing, even though there's a good chance when all no. is said, even when there's a chance when all is said and done by the numbers, Votto may have had a more valuable season uh, based, based on something like Wade Runs created, so sure. whatever. But I, I think if someone from a non playoff team is going to win it, it's going to be Stan. I agree with you on that, but I, I still think Votto could finish top four. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, it, like it would have been Harper before he got hurt in the mix. Uh, Anthony Rendon, for some reason, nobody's paying attention to how good he's been. None of the Dodgers, I don't think, will get it because a lot of those guys have missed time. So I do think Stanton's got a chance, and I do think uh, if he's going to win it, he has to hit at least 60. If he doesn't, then he's not going to win. Yeah, I think that's my uh, prediction, If for lack of a better word, is if he hits 60, he wins. If not, Goldsman. That's um, pretty hilarious to think that the difference between 59 and 60 could actually decide a major award, but you might actually be right. And um, it just seems more likely than ever, I think, that Stanton remains in Miami for a while. I don't think Derek Jeter and new ownership is going to trade him right away. Uh, that's probably not the best impression to make on the new fans. And also, I just don't think, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of this rumor about Stanton, oh, maybe they'll trade him. But I think it's just hard to construct a, a trade for Stanton that would, that would satisfy anyone, because if you're going to trade for Stanton, you're taking on a big contract. You know, he has like, what does he has like, uh, I mean, we have it written down here. I'm trying to figure out how much is left. <laughs> basically 10 years left on the deal, plus a 2028 option. We're basically making 20, 20, 25 up to $32 million per year. He's only been paid about $40 million of the contract so of far. Three, of the 300, uh, right. $325 million contract. So like, if you trade for him, you're like, well, I don't want to give up a lot. I'm taking on this huge contract. And if you're the Marlins, you're not going to trade them unless you're getting elite prospects back. So, like, the only way you can foresee a trade is if the Marlins threw in a lot of money to get better prospects. And I just can't see that happening either. So, I don't want to say they're stuck with them, but I think they – and I don't think – right now, they probably don't feel like they're stuck with them. Right now, they're, right. they're, they're like, hey, we finally have the stand we've been sort of waiting for, a fully healthy season. Because in 15, he was a beast, but he also got hurt and missed – he was kind of on pace for 50 homers, so he was going to be the stand we've been waiting for, but he was never able to stay healthy for a full season. His career high before this year was 37 homers, as hard as that is to believe. Now he's at, what, 51? 51. So I think he's going to be – I mean, he has an opt-out after 2020, but at the same time, like, it's hard to you – know, Who passes up that amount of money? Yeah, so um, I think he's – going to be a Marlin for a while. This is the, the Stanton we always hoped we'd see, uh, and now we're seeing it. And let's move on to another extremely large baseball man who crushes baseballs. Uh, if you look at the second-half leaders who have had at least 75 post-All-Star game plate appearances, and you were to rank them by expected weighted on base, very unsurprisingly, John Carlos Stanton is number one at 481. Also on the top five list, Vado, Rizzo, Blackman, all make sense. Who is number two? I think it might take people a minute to figure out who has actually had the second best quality of contact after the All-Star game. It's Joey Gallo, who you think of as barely ever making contact, which is to some extent true. Uh, Joey Gallo at a 447 expected weighted on base is the second best hitter by this metric in the second half, which I find amazing because Joey Gallo strikes out constantly, but he's still been extremely valuable. Joey Gallo is the best. Um, he's my favorite player in baseball right now, non Luis Perdomo division. <laughs> not for many reasons, not, not even including the fact that every time I say his name, I think of the my, my cousin Vinny, uh, Joey, Joey Callow. Joey Callow. Joey Callow. He's dead. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, anyway, um, but he is the like the ultimate three true outcomes hitter. And like I've always been a fan of three true outcomes hitters. And for those who aren't familiar with the phrase, these are players who do three things above all else: hit homers, strike out, or walk. And, you know, the patron saint is probably, depending on who you ask, is maybe Rob Deere. It's maybe Adam Dunn. Dunn is what I was going to say. But, yeah. like, what Gallo is doing, and we'll get to this in a second, it sort of, like, goes beyond anything that Adam Dunn ever did. And it's sort of amazing to think that like, he's taking three tour outcomes to a whole new level. Just listen to his his uh, 
triple slash line. 207 batting average. That will not impress very many people. 330 on base percentage. That's pretty good. I think it's slightly above league average. 561 slugging percentage. Now, if you remember, really batting average doesn't matter so much. So these last two numbers are what matters. That's a 128 weighted runs created plus. That's basically 30% above league average. That's really good. That's an extremely valuable player. He was a borderline all-star this year. And he's also leading baseball right now, minimum of 70 batted balls, in highest hard hit percentage, which we've defined as 95 miles an hour of exit velocity or over. He's number one. Aaron Judge is still number two. Alex Avila, who we've talked about a lot, and Chris with a K Davis. Uh, so when he hits the ball, which is not often, he hits it harder, more often than basically anybody in baseball. Yeah, it's um, it's actually, I mean, if you'd asked me in May, or like it, would, it was hard to fathom anyone would surpass Aaron Judge in the hard hit leader forward category, yeah. but Joey Gallo uh, has done it. And this is my favorite stat about Joey Gallo right now, is that right now he has 36 home runs and 21 singles, which is by far the highest home run to single ratio for a player who qualified for a batting title. In fact, in baseball history, it's only happened three times where qualified hitters have had more home runs than singles. And they are Mark McGuire in 1998 when he set the home run record. He had 70 home runs and 61 singles. He did again the next year. It was like 65 homers and 63 singles. And then... Barry Bonds in 2001 when he had 73, 73 homers. And I, uh, I should have written this down. It's like, like, but, like And that was different, too, because he just wasn't getting pitched to. Yeah. So be, he would basically homer or nothing else, and he had like, I don't know, 700 intentional walks or whatever that year. So right now he's going to uh, – Joey Gallo, is, who has 36 home runs and 21 singles, is poised to shatter the home run to single ratio record as if that, that's a thing I've invented. He also has 36 home runs and 38 non-home runs. So basically, like, it's almost like a one-to-one ratio of home, for hits of home runs versus non-home runs. It, and it was. Two days ago, it was. It was 36 and 36, uh, and then he had to make it slightly less cool by, you know, not getting home runs. And it should be 37 for 37, because if you were watching <laughs> That's right. the Rangers-Astros game in the Tropicana Field yesterday, he hit one with 110-mile-an-hour exit velocity, 38-degree launch angle that was projected to go over 400 feet that hit the catwalk. <laughs> And bounced in the field, so it was in play, and it was a double. So it wasn't a single got a double out of it. it so he preserved the home run to single ratio, but he should be at 37-37 right now. Well, I mean, and 37 is also his whiff rate. He has a 37% strikeout rate. That is tied for the second highest of any qualified season ever, behind only Keon Broxton this year, 37.5%. So, I mean, that's what he does. He strikes out a lot, um, but he crushes the ball. He is so much fun to watch. I love him. I love everything about Joey Gallo, especially the fact that he's hitting 207, because I like telling people that he's still a valuable player. Yeah, and like to go back to that point I made about Adam Dunn before. So Adam Dunn, from 2004 through 2008, where he hit more than 40 homers every year and hit exactly 40 homers every year from 2005 to 2008, in that, that stretch where he was basically like the peak three true outcomes hitter, he averaged 41 homers and 64 singles. So even like, just to give you a sense, like Gallo is like destroying the Adam Dunn like ratio in terms of home runs to singles. Um, and Russell Brand, another guy who's a part-time player who I think of as like another kind of like classic uh, three true outcomes guy in his best year, uh, 2009. In fact, the only year he qualified for the batting title, he had 31 homers and 55 singles. So like Joey Gallo is like, like scoffs at Russell Brannion and Adam Dunn when it comes to three true outcomes and hitting singles. Well, Joey Gallo is a member of the Texas Rangers who have one of the more interesting lineups in baseball. And part of this is for a reason I don't think I even told you about yet. So if you look at their second baseman, you have uh, Ruggie Odor. He has 27 home runs. And he has a 253 on base. That is the lowest on base percentage ever in history for a season with 27 plus home runs. Um, if if you look at uh, history, Tony Armas did it a couple times. He had a 254 on base in 1983. 
Guys like Dave Kingman, Tony Batista, Corey Snyder on the list. Look who else is on this list. The very bottom of our list here. Mike Napoli this year has 28 home runs with a 278 on base percentage. <laughs> they have two, two guys on the same Texas team who just about never get on base, but they can still hit home runs. I don't know if that's the most effective way to get to a lineup, and then you mix them in with Joey Gallo, and there's just a lot happening in our lineup. Right <laughs> You've got Joey Gallo and two guys who can hit home runs almost like Gallo, but never walk. Right. Which is, I don't know, it's not exactly what the way you would draw it up, I guess, but it's at least interesting. Um, I think Odor is kind of a fascinating case because it sure looked like he broke out or was going to break out uh, a couple of years ago. And it just, I don't know, he's taken a bit of a step back this year in the on-base percentage. You, you can't get by with a two fifty three for that long, right? Yeah, it's it, he's always sort of like, he was never going to be a big walk guy, but this year now the batting average is credited a little bit. Whereas like last year he hit like two seventies, so it's sort of like it bumped up. The, the OBP was actually above 300, I think, last year. Uh, but this year, it's just—I mean, I think he's amongst, in terms of weighted run, weighted runs created plus. Um, his weighted, red, red, weighted runs created plus is 66, where average is 100. Um, of 155 batting title qualifiers, he ranks 149th. That's so uh, that's not great. That's not that is not good. Um, and the thing is that, like, from the quality of contact standpoint, this is this is not uh, really. Uh, a fluke. Um, his weighted, his expected weighted on base is 289. His weighted on base is 284. Uh, so even last year, his good year, his expected weighted on base was 310. So it was a little better, but not like significantly better. And two years ago, when his overall season line looked a lot more like this year's season line, uh, his expected weighted on base was 292. He's still pretty young, but it sort of just feels like what you see is what you get. Well, I mean, they need him to improve. He's in the first year of a six-year extension. They've signed him from 2017 through 2022 uh, for just under $50 million. There's also an option for one more year after that. And I think that they, you know, as you said, they never expected elite on-base skills, but I think you need a little bit more than this. And you dug up a really weird stat about him, which I kind of like. He's the only left-handed hitting second baseman in Major League history who stands less than six feet tall to hit 30 home runs in a season. That's literally never happened before. And he's... He's, he's done it twice before, and he's going to do it a third do it again this, this year. year. So he is one of the, I don't know, he's just unique in a I, lot of ways. I mean, the long-term deal, I mean, even at the back end, they're paying him $12 million a year. So it's not like, he's never going to, like, be the reason that they're a disaster. Like, he's never going to be like, oh my God, this this Odor contract is dragging us down. But at the same time, when you sign the, these deals to players and you buy out their arbitration years, you're expecting them to, like, produce well beyond. You're, you're sort of hoping for the, the bargain as a team. You're, put, you're, you're investing them. And we've seen in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, a few of these deals kind of look like they might... Back, I mean, this is like sort of famously how the Indians built their team in the mid-90s. You know, the John Hart plan giving guys like... Um, uh, I guess it was uh, by Erga and Albert Bell and Manny. Did he get one? I don't remember. I can't exactly remember. Um, buying out the arbitration years, and but like last couple of years, you know, the Odor one not looking so good. Uh, Stephen Piscotti not looking so great. The the, the uh, Cardinals also did with Alan Craig that did not work out. And some of them are so young you can bounce back. I was like the Colton Wong one didn't look very good either, but he's actually been playing pretty well over the last. Yeah, but it's so it's interesting. I mean, again, but from the team perspective, when it's this team friendly, it's never going to like really crush you on the back end. Right. Uh, and now it is time to finish off our show by inducting a new play into the Stackcast Hall of Fame, which this week is presented by Tap Sports Baseball 2017. We are going to finally induct a fantastic-looking Kevin Pollar catch 
into our StatCast Hall of Fame. And I say finally because he may have the biggest discrepancy in baseball between, I think, the eye test and the data. Everything he does just looks great. Like, he has got his signature play. He goes out and he makes a Superman dive. You know, Javi Baez has his tags. Manny Machado has his, I'm going to go basically into the dugout and throw you out across my shoulder. This is what Kevin Pillar does. He makes everything look so great. And I think that's why Blue Jays fans love him so much. So, the other night, Monday night, against Mookie Betts, he had a catch that was measured at a 38% catch probability. That is a four-star catch. The ball was hit a projected 368 feet, and Polar was 83 feet away. He had to go and get it in 4.6 seconds, and he got there with a 29.9 foot per second sprint speed, where 30 feet per second is elite. That was his second best catch of the season by catch probability. So that's that's great. This is one of the times where it looked awesome, and the data backs it up. That was a four-star catch. So welcome to the Hall of Fame, Kevin Pillar. Yeah, what's notable you mentioned is that sprint speed of 29.9 feet per second, because I think part of the disconnect that we might be seeing with Kevin Pillar overall is that... The metrics were kinder to him a couple years ago, and then he might actually be losing a step. Um, in 2015, we had his sprint speed, his average sprint speed measured at 28.6 feet per second. 2015 was kind of when he burst on the scene as like this elite outfielder. So 28.6 feet per second, that's elite speed. Average is 27. So 28.6 is is high end. I mean, for a center fielder, it's not like it doesn't blow you away, but it's 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 up there. Um, then last year, it dropped to 28.0 feet per second. This year, it's 27.9. So when you think about maybe Pilar, why our why our metrics aren't loving him as much, that's a big reason why. Right, and in in mid September we are going to come out with uh, one of our our next generation Statcast stats, which is going to be outs above average, which will measure basically the cumulative effects of each individual catch probability play, and we will put it into you know one number that you can look at. And he is going to have, uh, and this might change by then, but at the moment he's going to have the second largest drop from last year to this year, and the first largest drop is Adam Eaton, who got hurt and missed like basically the entire season. I don't even count it. I mean, I don't even think you should count Eaton. If you're going by innings played, sure. like, he, has, he has the biggest drop. I'm just looking at the overall... Like, I'm just saying, but like Pilar, for all intents and purposes, has the biggest drop. Right, and at the moment, we would have him uh, going down from uh, plus 15, outs above average, to negative two, and I think that that is going to be a little controversial, but I will say this. I always like to look at some of the other stats that are out there just as a smell test, and, you know, so DRS and UZR, and only the range components, because I'm not worried about, you know, arm strength or anything right now. DRS has him dropping from 24 to 11. UZR has him dropping from 22 to 1. So we're at least in the ballpark there. I think we can we can sell that and say, hey, we're not we're not the only ones who say maybe he's, he's still good, but he's not quite what he looked like. And and it's a, another reminder that catch probability is it's not only about speed, but speed is a huge component of it because it's basically it's basically a rage measure. It's like how far did you go to make a play? Like how much time did you have to make a play, and how far did you have to go to make it? And what direction? And what direction? So it's like that's that's really it. So it's testing the 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 re- the boundaries of your range, and like you know, so if you for for me, for example, if I was trying to make a catch, I may have to dive on a play that Kevin Pillar was camped under to give you an extreme example. So like sometimes guys make diving catches, so he makes this. Sometimes he makes these diving catches where maybe Byron Buxton would be camped under it, or maybe two years ago. Kevin Pillar would have been camped under it. Yeah, and I, I can tell you that's one of our off-season pro- uh, projects. I've seen just the very, very first version of this is trying to get to the heart of are outfielders good because of speed or because of skill? You know, and skill could be instincts, it could be you know, great route, whatever. Um, and it's going to be pretty interesting. Some guys are great at both. We've talked about Ender and Ciarte is a fantastic outfielder, but he's not terribly fast, all things considered. So I think that'll be something very cool, and that's a winter project. But one other thing I wanted to talk about on this catch is uh, he was playing really, really deep, right? So the average center fielder plays 318 feet away from home plate. 
Kevin Pillar's average is 322 feet away from home plate. On this catch, he was 334 feet away from home plate and actually shaded over towards right field, and the ball went to the right field gap. So just based on where he was standing, it was actually a little easier for him to catch than if he was standing where he usually was. And it made me think of a play from a couple weeks ago when they were in Wrigley Field, and he made a great catch against Chris Bryant and basically disappeared into the Ivy. 340 feet away from home plate. That's where he was standing. So that makes it a little bit easier when you don't have to go an extra 22 feet as compared to the major league average. And, and reminder, as you know, we don't catch probability does not give style points. We love catches with style points, yes. but uh, the metric is agnostic to dives and leaps. It's, I think it really helps someone like Kevin Kiermaier who makes everything look easy. And and I think Kevin Pillar is kind of the other end where he's a good outfielder, but he just makes everything look so cool, which is great because he's exciting and I love watching him play. So welcome to the Statcast Hall of Fame for your robbery of Mookie bets, uh, Kevin Pillar. That is our Statcast Hall of Fame play for this week, brought to you by Tap Sports Baseball 2017. Go to the iTunes or Google Play App Store now to download it today for free and start building your ultimate roster. That's our Statcast podcast for this week. No show next week with the holiday week. We will catch you when we come back. Thanks for listening.